Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. I'm your host Diane Gibbs and I'm joined with my good friend Mitch Jackson. He is coming to at us from California. He is a trial lawyer. He was um, voted the one of the number one trial lawyers in California this year but in, in or in, in Orange County in 2009 I believe right. I'm probably messing up your bio a little bit but amazing he's an amazing storyteller he's an amazing social media guy so super humble but he's super super helpful so today he's going to help us with things that we need to know as small businesses and a lot of times designers are working on their after hours they work for a design firm and they're working after hours or they're just starting their own business and he's going to give us give us some tips that all small businesses should know so Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to have you on, and I know you're super busy, so thanks so much for coming. Uh, Diane, thanks for having me on. You know, uh, I just think the world of the uh, friendship that we've formed, primarily through Spreecast over the past year, it's a pleasure. And I think the game plan today is to hopefully share some legal tips that will save people watching this Spreecast, small business owners, save them a lot of time, a lot of trouble, and a lot of hassle. Uh, things, that, things that we've seen over the past three decades in trial and litigation that people can easily avoid doing to protect their business and to make a profit. So it's good to be here today. Well, cool. And we'll share links um, during out, during, throughout the whole Spreecast. So, and if you have questions, if you're new to Spreecast, over here is great. You can actually, in the live chat tab over there, you can type in and you can type in questions or you can actually hit the submit question okay. button right under Mitch too, if you yeah. want. So, well, what would be some tips of somebody who's maybe not, um, they're just working as a freelancer at night and on the weekends, um, when they're not working at their day job, what would be some things that they really need to think about, establish it maybe as a business? Well, one of the one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is they commingle uh, other businesses with their day job. Uh, they'll write, you know, a new software program. They'll come out with a new product while they're in the office working for someone else, and it creates issues as to who has ownership rights who has the right to profits off of that widget. And so the first thing I would recommend is to keep your day job separate from your night job. If you're doing another business, maybe set it up, if you can, as a limited liability company or as a uh, subchapter S corporation or C corporation, set up a separate business. Use a separate email address. Use separate uh, letterhead and business address. Don't combine what you do during the day with your new business venture that you're doing at night. And by the way, what we're going to talk about today, Diane, um, I'm not going to go all lawyer on you. And what I mean by that is I'm a, a, a big proponent of people taking action, making things happen. Uh, I love uh, entrepreneurs. I love being an entrepreneur. I don't want to have uh, the syndrome of paralysis by analysis kick in. In other words, I'm a firm believer of doing things and just going for it, and but but doing so intelligently. So the first thing is to separate your night project with your day job, if that makes sense. Definitely. I, I didn't realize that 
when I left a company, I had a sketchbook, you know, I mean, we keep sketchbooks and I, you know, was just working on the stuff for them in the sketchbook, but I wanted to take it with me. It was my sketches. And they said, I said, I'm going to take this. Is that okay? And she said, it is. But just so you know, this is the, pro it is the property of the, the company. And I was like, really? I just didn't get that. But it was, it was stuff I had done. And I think there are lots of things that we don't realize like that because um, mm -hmm. they were my sketches, but I did them at work. So <laughs> that's kind of what you were talking about with time. A absolutely. And think about so, that to your, to your sketches that you did at work. So you were being paid while at work to do your own sketches. And, you know, if you have employment agreements, if you have employment contracts, read those documents and see what you've already promised your employer you would or would not do between nine and five during your day job. And once again, just try to keep the left hand separate from the right hand. That's, that's the key legal tip on that issue. Definitely. So if they're planning on transitioning, so say they, they haven't done anything wrong, they've been working only at night on their stuff, and they're maybe transitioning into, so one of the first things is if they can set up a LLC or a C Corp or an S Corp. Um, is there anything else just as a, a business owner that they need to look into just to make sure that they're taking care of anything? I know with taxes, really that's an accountant um, issue, but there, are there any other legal issues to think about? Well, absolutely. And what I'd like to just throw out to you is if you're going to be starting uh, a new business, opening up your own shop, coming out with a new widget, it's you have to think of it as you're starting a new separate business. So if you have the funds to to set up an LLC or a corporation, I would do that first, and I would set up a a corporate or or LLC bank account, uh, and set up a new email address and a new address. You want to separate everything. Um, by the way, Diane, we should probably start off today's precast just with a disclaimer. I'm a California lawyer. And while I am a lawyer, I'm not your lawyer. I'm not the lawyer of people watching this precast. I'm only licensed to practice law in California. The laws are different in each state. So if you have any legal questions or any legal needs uh, based upon what you've heard in this precast, you know, contact a lawyer in your city, in your state for further advice. And the California State Bar requires me to share that disclaimer. And I just want to be clear about that. But what I would do is I would start, you know, setting up these separate items, the separate bank account, the separate contact information. If you've got the type of business where you actually have to, you know, lease office space or set up a, a factory, then you want to make sure you have your insurance set up to protect you in case something goes wrong. So plan ahead, start setting these things up so that when you leave your job A, to start job B, you've made a very smooth and comfortable transition. And here's another legal tip, and it doesn't, another tip that's not legal, but it does have to do with success. And that is, if you've got the type of reputation and rapport with your current employer so that you can be upfront with them about what you're doing, you're not burning bridges when you leave, that's really the best way to do it. They may be your first big client. So if you can complement your new business with all of the relationships you established at your at your original company, 
that's probably the best way to go about it. So Donna had a great question. I know that when I set up my LLC, I got I already had an EIN, which is an employer identification number, and they actually you can do it online. It's super mm -hmm. simple. Um, it's at the IRS. I don't I the something. If you look up EIN, how do I get an EIN? You can actually do it. But I have multiple businesses, so I have multiple EINs. And if you set up a company in the beginning, and it's just a not an LLC you'll end up getting a new EIN if you get an LLC. And that's what I ended up having to do. But you're recommending from the beginning. And what does um, an LLC do? How does that protect me? Well, going back to Donna's question, once, once you, which Donna, by the way, is a really good question. And there are different ways to set, it, set that up. Um, the key mistake I see a lot of people making is they'll set their initial company up correctly. If it's an LLC, a limited liability company, which is a company we recommend for most of our clients here in California, it provides you the same protection that a corporation uh, provides you, but the annual administrative requirements are less. It's easier to run and manage. So once you set these companies up and you do the paperwork, there are normally many other steps that need to be made, that need to be taken so that the company is run legally, so that it's managed properly. And when you set up an LLC or when you set up a corporation, whether you have a lawyer do this for you, whether you go to a site like LegalZoom.com, which does a great job at setting up the initial paperwork, once you receive this paperwork, there are things you have to do to make that company a legal entity and to be considered a business uh, operating on a daily and weekly basis. For example, you need a separate tax ID number. You need separate bank accounts. You need uh, uh, insurance, depending on your product or service, that's protecting that new business. You need to file in most states uh, annual documents and annual fees so that your business is a legitimate business. There are, that's where I see people messing up all the time is they'll, they'll get their company set up correctly with the initial paperwork, but six months into it, 12 months into it, they've made so many mistakes by not filing or doing all of the above that for all practical purposes, whether they realize it or not, the business that they think that they're running isn't actually a proper entity under that state's law. So it's setting things up correctly, but even more importantly, it's managing and running it on a daily basis under the law of your particular state. Um, so Donna has another question. Um, is it better to set up as an LLC or as I did a sole proprietorship? And it's okay, Donna, you can ask questions. Yeah, you know what? Questions are great. And uh, I love asking questions. You know, I, I there's a lot that I don't know. And I learned a lot a long time ago. If you don't ask the question, you're not going to get the answer. So bring those questions on. Donna, here's the lawyer in me. First of all, if you can, if at all possible, set up your company, your small business or large business as an LLC or as a subchapter S corporation or as a C corporation. It depends on the state that you're in. So you need to, you need to check with, with an attorney or with a, uh, a legal form service like LegalZoom.com for the particular state. The reason I don't normally recommend that people do business as a sole proprietorship or as a general partnership is because of the liability. If something happens, if somebody gets hurt by your product, 
if somebody loses money from your service, if somebody sues you, even if the lawsuit doesn't have any merit, but they file a lawsuit and they take you into litigation and you lose all of your personal assets, your personal bank accounts, uh, the equity in your home, anything of that you have could be could be exposed to a judge, judgment creditor. And the same concept applies with general partnerships. I, I actually feel if, you're, if an attorney recommends someone do business as a general partnership, it arguably could be malpractice. I mean, there's so much liability exposure to doing business as a general partnership, I won't even do them. So now, that's the, that's the legal answer. As a lawyer, as an entrepreneur, as a business person, if you don't have the financial means to set up an LLC or a corporation because it does does cost a little bit of money, um, then do a sole proprietorship. Set it up correctly pursuant to your local state laws. Get the ball rolling. Once business picks up, once business takes off, then sit down with your accountant, which we didn't talk about, Diane. Having a good accountant is very, very important to maximizing profits, minimizing taxes legally. Uh, once the business takes off, if you can, convert it, change it, modify it to an LLC or a corporation so that you're protected. And um, just so you know, like for me, when I did my LLC, I did go through LegalZoom and it was about $300. And then it cost me an extra $100 every year to do business in Alabama. Um, so just so people know, kind of, it'll be different in every state because some states don't have a, a yearly fee, but some do and some I'm sure it's more but um, it really saved me a lot of the am I getting everything done kind of thing so and it mm -hmm. is good to have somebody in your state that knows like my dad's an attorney in Georgia he didn't have I mean he could help me a little but he couldn't help me a ton so let me see what Jennifer has what constitutes a binding contract in the digital virtual world great question um, for instance, when we do freelance online for someone, is there something that would hold up or do we still have to have an actual signature on a physical contract? That's a great question. That is a great question. And Jennifer, once again, I'm licensed in California. In California, a binding contract can be in writing or it can be an oral contract. Okay, a binding contract in California does not have to be in writing. The problem with oral contracts is that they can be difficult to prove in a court of law. It's a he said, she said type of scenario. So the same principle uh, will apply when you're doing business either online or offline and once again it's state specific. The bottom line is uh, with respect to contracts is you need an offer, an acceptance, and consideration. Those are the three primary main uh, characteristics of a binding contract. And so if Diane offers to perform uh, design services for me at a specific price to be completed within a specific time period. And I tell Diane, that sounds great. I shoot her an email, that sounds perfect, let's do it. Then arguably we have a binding contract, at least we would here in the state of California. We have an offer and acceptance and consideration. So along those same lines, what I would like to suggest is always put the understanding, always confirm the understanding in writing, whether it's you know a letter, whether it's a, an agreement that you have for your particular company, whether it's something that you have online that people can, 
can digitally sign using DocuSign and companies like that. You know, you want to have the terms and conditions of your relationship clearly defined in writing. It doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be a 10-page contract, but just have the offer, what the acceptance is, and what the terms and conditions of that contract are. And uh, we may not get into all the details today, Diane, but I mentioned to you before the spreecast, and I want everyone to know that next week I'm coming out with uh, an ebook that will be for sale, but I want to make it free uh, to everyone viewing the spreecast. And we've placed a special link that Diane's just indicated below us. It's at our website forward slash Diane Gibbs. But the name of the book will probably be something like Don't Lose Your Head While Doing Business Online Six Ways to Avoid the Internet and Social Media Guillotine. And I'm going to be explaining in more detail answers to these types of questions. So if I was starting off a new business, whether it's even offline or online, this is the type of short 10 to 20 page ebook that you can look at to answer these questions in more detail. So I just wanted to toss that out to you, Diane, and to your viewers. So another, um, what, another tip that what I do when I have a contract, I actually send them a PDF they can circle whichever part they want. And then I always get money up front. I don't get all of it, of course, but I get money up front. So they usually have to send me a check. So then I ask them to sign that and send it with it. So then I have, they've given me an okay. I actually go ahead and probably get started. But I, you know, before I, the check and that contract comes in the mail and it just covers my basis a little bit, a little bit better. So Diane, another little way to, yeah. along those same lines, you mentioned getting an initial deposit, something like that. I want everyone to keep in mind that if you make the other side work a little bit to close the deal with you to enter into the contract, it's going to have more meaning. So when you have online forms that somebody can just quickly click and then browse away to look for more cat pictures on Google, they may not take the, the impact of that contract as, as serious as they should. So I would like to suggest that when you're doing business with people, have them uh, receive by facsimile or print out the PDF, have them sign it, maybe fax or mail it back to you using snail mail or, or scanning it and emailing it back. Have an actual document that somebody needs to look at and needs to sign. I think it's, it just avoids unnecessary ambiguities, misunderstandings, and it places a level of importance on the agreement that they're agreeing to enter into with you. So we do that all the time. I could do it a lot faster on the internet with a lot of things that we do, but I purposefully don't because I want the other side to respect the process and understand that there is some, some weight into what they're agreeing to do. I agree, totally. So, um, so I've, I've been in business since um, with my company since 2000 and what you know there's lots of things I've gone through um, there's lots of tips for designers on what should and shouldn't be covered in a contract um, and as a freelancer um, you know a lot of people one of my clients Cindy Carter she's on right now and her and I have um, we probably had a contract when I first did her stuff but then now it's just kind of ongoing and so what would you say, um, what, 
what would be should be covered? Should I have something that covers me in somebody that's an ongoing kind of regular weekly or monthly? Um, how and how are those different than project by project? Well, it's Diane. It sounds like you have the same situation that I run into. I'll I'll agree to represent a client on a single transaction on a single case. And because you're doing business correctly and I try to do business correctly, you know, you, you start to you develop a, a relationship with that client. And most of the time they become friends and the phone rings and they want you to help them out with the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. So what's always a good idea is to have include a paragraph in your standard contract, in your uh, independent uh, consultant agreement, in the contract for services that talks about that, that basically says, um, you know, this contract can roll over into an annual agreement or this agreement will apply to all future projects unless otherwise excluded in writing or unless the terms and conditions of this contract are changed in writing between the parties. Go ahead and include a paragraph in there. And the paragraph should also indicate that the terms and conditions of the current agreement will apply to all future jobs or tasks uh, subject to 30 days notice and subject to a written modification of this contract signed by all parties. So I think it's real smart when you're doing it, when you're doing business with, with clients that require contracts to have a provision like that in the contract. In addition to provisions that require mediation, arbitration, venue clauses, attorneys clauses, and things like that. I don't want to jump ahead, but, uh, that is a very common problem, and so you need to address it. And that way, when the client signs the contract for the first time, you and he have a an understanding as to how all future business um, is going to be transacted. Don't just disregard it. Just That's don't great. don't act like it's not going to happen because it's it's going to happen if you do a good job for a client. Thankfully, um, so what if a what would you say are some of the um, main things that need to be in every contract? You talked about an offer and acceptance uh, or a consideration and then an acceptance. Can you break that down for us as designers? We might not, or small business owners, that might not be our, we might not know sure. exactly what you're talking about. So can you kind of break it down? Just be as specific as you can with respect to the terms and conditions of the contract. So if you're designing a website for someone, if you're designing a brochure for someone, make sure that that's specifically delineated in the written agreement, in the written contract. Otherwise, the other person may come back to you and say, Diane, we love the website, we love the, the brochure that you put together, but what about the rest of our stationery? What about the banners you're gonna put up for next weekend's uh, fundraiser in the local park? What about this, what about that? So unless your contract is definite and certain, then it allows for this ambiguity. So whatever you're contracting for, make sure that that's specific. The other problem I've seen is you want to have the term of the contract, the time for performance, you want that crystal clear. So if you're taking on a project that's going to take 60 days to do, make sure in the contract that it's clearly obviously discussed with the client and then confirmed in writing in the contract. The last important area has to do with the terms of payment. How will you be paid? Uh, 
is there a lump sum due at the very end? Will there be periodic payments? Will payment be made by cash, check, credit card, PayPal? You want to specifically indicate all of these different options ahead of time at the very beginning of the relationship so that there's an arm's length understanding as to what your customer expects of you and just as important, what you can reasonably expect of your customer. So to the takeaway from this precast on that question is be specific, be definite, be certain, and that's going to help all parties involved in the transaction. And I think it's also important not just us be specific about what we're offering, but it's also about what's expected. Because a lot of times if they want something in 60 days, they mm -hmm. also have to provide you with information for me to be able to meet the 60 days in the money that is agreed upon. You have to meet your deadline here and your deadline here so that I can keep rolling. If, if you wait till 10 days before the deadline, it's not going to cost the same amount because now I'm having to rush. Um, mm -hmm. And it might not even be possible. Um, so those are things also be very specific about their deadlines. And sometimes you just need to write a new contract, like they've had a, a death in the family or they've had some other, you know, catastrophic thing. You have to be flexible, but, um, but sometimes they just don't get you the stuff. So it's, I make sure that my responsibilities are clear in the contract as well as their responsibilities are clear in the contract. Well, and you brought up a very good point. Anytime you're providing a service that requires a schedule, it's like having a contractor come in to, to remodel part of your home and they promise you this is going to be done in the first 30 days, this is going to be done in the next 60 days, and then at 90 days. And if he or she doesn't do what they're supposed to do, then they shouldn't get paid. Well, what you're doing is if you have a schedule, then have that schedule clearly lined out maybe one or two sentences for each item of design. And once that's done, does that kick in a payment obligation on the part of your customer or client? So once again, it's just about being clear, certain, and concise with what you want to have happen. And a lot of times, um, if it's a smaller project, um, if it's under $500, maybe I just do two payments in the beginning and the end. If it's a bigger project, it's going to be um, anywhere from a thousand to ten thousand dollars, it's going to be broken up into a minimum of three payments, and it's easier for them. It's called progress billing. It's easier for the client not to have this big lump um, because a lot of times, if you're not really specific, um, I, I did a website and we get, um, we signed a contract to do a ten-page website, which is pretty small. It ended up being over a hundred pages. And mm. we had to work out a new agreement because they kept saying, ooh, let's do this and let's do this. And I was like, that's great, but you know, that's not in our contract. This is in my contract. I say, if we go over these 10 pages, it's going to be at my hourly rate, which is not what they want to pay. You don't want to pay an hourly rate to get something done. More than likely you want to pay for a, a thing. So we just worked out a new um, payment because that would be a huge difference between 10 pages and over 100 pages. So it's something to bring to their attention. Also, it makes them feel like you're on their side and, hey, you know what, well, we're going over our budget or, you know, and then they think that you're part of their team because you are part of their team. I mean, that's how I look at it. I'm not trying to take anybody to the bank. Um, I'm just trying to help their business grow. 
Well, let me let me jump in real quick, okay? Because you're in business uh, to help people, but also to earn a living and to help your family. And over on my credenza over there, I have pictures of my my family, my kids, my wife. And every time I have a a challenge with should I take a new case and or what should I quote the client to get the case done, I look over there and I try to keep my priorities straight. Along the scheduled payments that we're talking about, my recommendation would be uh, be the graphic uh, designer, be the design expert who commands a premium uh, uh, payment for the services. And I'm a strong proponent. The, the more you get a client invested in the project right up front, the better it's going to work for everyone. So if you can get paid up front 100%, that would be my starting point on negotiations. If they want to break it up, 50% at the start, 50% at the completion, uh, that's fine too. But if you get the client invested, and this goes for any small business, if you get paid up front, uh, it's going to be a lot smoother relationship and they're going to respect you for looking them in the eye and saying, listen, I can help you, but this is what it's going to take. As soon as I started doing that, it took me about 10 years of practice to figure this out. As soon as I started doing that, what I found is my outstanding invoices uh, went down to almost zero. Uh, the clients were happy and inve invested in the, in the services that we were helping them with, and things just went smoother. So there is another philosophical approach to, you know, how should you handle upfront payments? And, and my suggestion would be get paid in full if you can, and if you can't, uh, you know, do what it do what needs to be done to get your client to commit to the project so that they're vested in it. And this, this was me doing a three payment. So they had already paid twice, but then we went over. And yeah. it would have been almost double of what they had planned on their whole payment being. Um, and so I, I renegotiated because they had, so they had already been invested, but they didn't realize how much it was going to be. So we, we reworked out, but I agree with you. I think you should get money up front. I don't, because other, other ways they can just walk away and say, no, I don't like what you did. Yeah. And then you just wasted the money or, and the time of doing the work. Um, so what if you have a client who has their own contract for you? You're, um, and it is that 20 page contract and, and they didn't want to sign your contract which is, you know, pretty small, one, two pages. What do you do in situations like that? Well, normally what I do is I ask, I would, if I were you, I would ask the uh, client to send over the contract so that you can review it uh, on your own time. You don't want to be sitting across the desk from someone under the gun, under pressure, and quickly reading through something and signing your name to it without thoroughly reviewing it, thinking about it, and anticipating the pros and cons. Is this contract really going to cover everything? You may be handed an excellent contract, the type of contract that you can use with your next client. It doesn't necessarily mean it's bad just because it's coming from a client, but I think a, a smart approach would be get it ahead of time so that you have a chance to look it over. The other thing people need to understand is that there's nothing wrong with uh, negotiating terms and conditions of a contract. You're not being rude by doing that. You're not showing any level of inexperience by doing that. What you're showing is that you're a business person. And if somebody asks you to do something in writing that you're not comfortable with or you think might expose your company or you to liability, 
well then you need to talk about it and you need to either modify the clause, eliminate the clause, but certainly don't sign the agreement uh, while someone's got a, a gun to the side of your head, uh, you know, demanding that you do so. Right. What if you think that it, uh, and they, they wouldn't modify it at all. So is that just one you walk away from saying it's probably just not worth the trouble? Well, I'm a firm believer that it's a negotiation process. When you're bringing in a new client, they're feeling you out. You're getting a feel for where they're coming from. And in any negotiation, and I'm going to do a spreecast on this sometime because I just love negotiations. Negotiations, you have to care about the deal, but not that much. And that's the secret. Um, you're there to provide exemplary services for this customer, and you're willing to do so under reasonable conditions. But if they want you to sign a 17-page contract and you're comfortable with everything except a clause on page three, uh, you need to tell them that. And it's a deal breaker. And don't be afraid to get up and walk out of the room. Thank them for your time. Let them know everything else looks fine except clause seven on page three. If they have a change of heart, they know how to get a hold of you. Uh, it was nice meeting them and leave. I mean, you know, it's it's one of these things where just being around lawyers all the time, I I, all I can tell you is a lot of provisions are inserted into contracts that uh, the other side never really expects you to accept. But if you're silly enough to accept it and sign that contract, then that's even better for the other side. So do the dance and play the game a little bit, but don't ever sign anything that you're not comfortable with or that you haven't had a chance to look at. If they force you to do this, then you don't want them as a client anyway. They're going to be a pain in the ass. So with negotiations, sometimes you have to bring in an attorney um, that's called a mediator, and they're going to look at it like um, it's not going to a judge or anything like that, but that's kind of what the mediator is. Can you talk about, a little bit about mediation and when you would need it? Sure. Um, at our website, we've included a clause that, that I insist all of my California clients include in their contracts and it's a mediation and arbitration provision basically what it says is that if either party in the contract feels that they've been wronged that the other side hasn't performed or hasn't done what he or she or it uh, indicated it promised to do then you agree to have the case arbitrated with a local arbitration company and here in orange county we have two companies that we use all the time uh, what then happens is instead of the parties getting involved in costly and time-consuming litigation and having the outcome of your case come down to who can outspend the other person in expensive litigation, uh, if it's not settled, it goes in, in front of a jury of 12 here in California, and you let 12 people you've never met decide what happens with this dispute, or you can avoid all of that and have your case arbitrated by a retired judge or an experienced lawyer who informally listens to the evidence, informally lets you explain your side of the story, and then he or she makes a decision. Sometimes it might be two or three arbitrators, so it'll be the two out of three have to rule on each issue. What we found with arbitration and mediation is it takes a lot less time, it's a lot less expensive, and if you have the right arbitrator stepping in to help you, it's going to save everybody a lot of headache and you're going to get the result that you want. 
before arbitration happens, we also suggest that you have this mediation provision. And what that is is, Diane, let's just say you and I have a disagreement. We take it into arbitration, and an arbitration date is set six months out. And during that six-month period, we exchange documents, we exchange settlement offers, we try to get the case done, but we have a date to have a final arbitration. Before that date, we have an informal mediation. We go in front of another judge who then tries to informally get you and I to move a bit on each of our positions to settle the case. If we're successful and the mediation mediator does a good job, then our case is done, settlement agreements are signed, and we're all done. There never is an arbitration. If we're not successful, you can then proceed to arbitration just as though this mediation never took place. What happened at the, at the mediation is inadmissible. In fact, the arbitrator will never even know a mediation took place. A good thing about a mediation is even if you don't settle the case during mediation, you always leave a mediation with a little bit more knowledge about where the other person's coming from. You, you, the mediator will talk to you about the strong parts of your case and the weak parts of your case. Sometimes you'll have a client sitting next to you and, and, and the client needs to hear about the weak parts of their case from someone else other than you. Now, I, don't ask me why that it gives it, you know, it gives the situation more credibility, but the dynamics are such that they'll listen to someone that they're not as comfortable with. Um, so by including mediation and arbitration provisions in your contracts, in your independent contractor agreements and the contracts that you use, you can many times, if not in most instances, avoid litigation and avoid lawsuits. And that's why they're such powerful tools to use. Cool. Good to know. Um, it's good to know there may be something that maybe won't be so um, uh, out there on the affordability. It'll be much more affordable to do something like that. Um, what about if I am growing my business and I'm going to have an outside contractor come and, and work for a few days? What kind of contract would I need with that person? Well, if I understand your question, it's you probably would be using an independent contractor agreement, just a short contract. Once again, I'm going to bring you in. I'm doing a website, but I need someone that's experienced with um, the video aspect of web design, someone that can take the whole Spreecast platform and, and embed it in my client's site. That's just not something that I do. So in your agreement with this third party, you're going to specifically indicate why you're bringing him or her in, what they're going to be paid, how much time it's going to be, it's going to take, and what you're both expecting the end result to be. So there's no magic term for the type of contract, but what I found successful clients, what they've done in the past, is they'll have templates set up for short jobs, simple jobs, they'll have a one page maybe one and a half page independent contracting agreement for third party services like we just talked about. For a more involved, a more expensive long-term project, they're going to have a longer, more detailed type of agreement laying out all the terms and conditions. So I hope that answered your question. That did, that's great. Um, should a business owner who, uh, who's, um, 
hiring maybe an outside contractor, should they ask them to sign a no compete clause? And sometimes they ask you to sign something that will make you so that you can't talk about whatever it is or they can't use it in their portfolio. And what are some mm -hmm. things um, yeah. to look for and to think about when somebody asks you to do something like that? Well, um, it, you know, it depends on which side of the desk you're sitting. In California, generally speaking, non-compete, non non-competition clauses are invalid. There are four or five exceptions, but public policy is we want people to be able to go out and open up their own businesses and compete for business. And so generally speaking, if you sign a non-compete clause in California, it's not going to be valid, but there are some exceptions. So check with a lawyer if you're here in California and, and you've got this issue. Across the country, the laws are similar in some states, and in other states, they're completely valid. So you have to think ahead of time, find out what the law is in your state, and then you have to uh, figure out whether or not the deal that you're expecting, you know, that, you're, that you would like to close, or the person you're going to be working for, uh, or the person you're going to be hiring, whether or not that particular transaction overrides everything else, your ability to at some point go out and start your own, your own company. There's a difference between non-compete clauses and non-disclosure agreements. Okay. In California and in most states, non-disclosure agreements are valid. Um, I was just involved with Google on a non-disclosure agreement where there's a, uh, uh, an exciting new product coming out. And uh, once I sign this non-disclosure agreement, I'm not allowed to talk about what the product is. I'm not allowed to talk about any of the details of the product. And because of that type of business arrangement, they get to see uh, how an attorney will interact with a potential product. It gives them a chance to test their product out in the market. So it's a really good thing. There's nothing wrong with non-disclosure agreements. The only thing that's wrong with a non-disclosure agreement is if you breach it, then you're, then you're in a lot of trouble. And um, <laughs> the, other, the other thing I've seen is along these same lines is an employee working within a company developing relationships with, with that company's clients, uh, a contact list, uh, uh, proprietary information. That employee then goes out and opens up their, their own business and brings with him or her this contact list, brings with him or her things that were known only by that particular company. And obviously that's a big no-no. Um, clients sometimes feel, I'm sorry, uh, employees sometimes feel that personal relationship they have with a customer is such that they can take that relationship wherever they want to go. But in reality, with most companies, the customer belongs to the company. And so you've got three different issues here. A non-competition agreement, that's state-specific. Uh, you have to you know, give it some thought before you sign anything like that. Find out what the law is. A non-disclosure agreement is something that uh, if I was in your business and I was bringing people in to work on different projects that you have, Diane, I would, I would have a non-disclosure agreement that that independent contractor needs to sign because you don't want him or her to go back out into the general public and share all of your internal secrets, things that you do, your secret sauce that nobody else does. And um, right. so it's smart. It's smart to plan ahead. So how about if, uh, this is kind of along the same lines, but what if a client um, doesn't want, um, so say whoever's got the target 
you know, who has Target as a client. I think they're in Minneapolis. Um, they, Target says, hey, but I don't want you covering Kohl's or I don't want you covering Kmart or Walmart. I want you to be only for Target. So a client comes to you and says, I do not want you to take on any other um, competition, my competition. But can't you ask for more money then because you're going to be losing out um, and you want to make sure you have a, a time frame on, on how long their contract is or what would you suggest? Yeah. Well, I would suggest that if you're in business for yourself, Diane, if your company is approached and asked to do something like this, you don't work for this, this other company. You're not an employee of Walmart. You don't have to jump when they say jump. You don't have to ask how high. So you need to dictate the terms and conditions. If this is the type of client that you want to have, understanding you can't work for any of Walmart's competitors, then you need to come back with, well, that's a possibility. This is the number. These are the terms and conditions that it's going to take to make that happen. You're doing them a favor. They're not doing you a favor. And a really good approach would be to have a middleman handling this negotiation for you. Take yourself out of the picture. So you've got somebody who's meeting with Walmart on your behalf to negotiate this arrangement. Uh, and that way, um, your best interest is going to be protected. Most small business owners that I've met are not the best negotiators when it comes to uh, negotiating the terms of a deal. Uh, if I'm representing an artist, they want to paint. They want to shoot photography. Right. They're not good at, at, at negotiating deals and getting a premium contract for the services that they render. So get a middleman involved, and that middleman is going to approach Walmart and say, listen, no, what we want to do is offer Diane's services to you. You came to her. She didn't come to you. And uh, that's the extent or scope of this particular agreement. We have the right to go out and do business with anybody we want. Um, obviously, we'll, you know, we're, we're open to fine-tuning the relationship so that if she's doing A and B with Walmart, she won't do A and B with your three competitors. She'll do C, D, and E. But you know, it's it's a it's a dance, and um, and once again, each state is different. Well, and I have two two clients in California, and they're in the same um, industry, and they know each other. Um, so it's not a bad thing, but they, one found me through the other one. And um, I, you know, I just, now I'm competing against myself to do something, you know, but I don't, I don't want them to look similar, but because you're in the industry and I have other clients in Colorado and that are in that same sort of um, industry. So I know the industry. And as you get in your career, you start becoming an expert in that one or in a few of areas so you you become really good at that so people tend to seek you out but it's it can be um touchy when people and i always just am really open i don't ever hide oh you know i'm not going to put my um designed by at the bottom of the website or something um i always keep it there and i just keep it really open and transparent mm -hmm. but i also want my client to know I'm not sharing any of their secrets I it's other things that I've learned through design that I'm going to apply to them and that just comes with time I, I would think that I, I would think that most most designers would want to have a provision in their initial agreement that you that you would use with most of your clients 
that talks about it's understood between the parties that you provide design services for various individuals and companies and services across the country. Some may or may not be similar to the services contemplated in this particular agreement. It's agreed between the parties that this full disclosure and understanding has taken place at the time this agreement was entered into. Then you go to the next paragraph. If you have something like that in your agreement, then it gives you flexibility later on if the issue is raised to take one of two positions. You could take the position, we discussed this during our initial consultation. I have a written contract that basically says I can do business with whoever I want, and I appreciate your concerns. Don't worry about it. it you know, I'm not going to be disclosing any personal information. You could take that, that path, path A, or path B would be, you know what, I'm glad you brought this to my attention. Let me reassure you I won't be doing business with company B. You know, they haven't approached me. I'm not interested. I'm devoted to you. It gives you that flexibility. So once again, you need to address all of the potential issues that you've seen over the years in your standard template contract. And we do that with our attorney-client retainer agreement. My retainer agreement is eight pages long. And some lawyers in California have a one-page retainer agreement. It probably doesn't even comply with state bar rules. But I tell the clients, listen, uh, you never know who's going to be looking over your shoulder. And the agreement that we use is, is recommended by the California State Bar. It's detailed. It's thorough. But I'll represent your interest as thoroughly as I'm protecting our interest on day one of our relationship. And the clients get it. They actually appreciate the fact that, you're, that you've taken the time to put together a detailed document uh, anticipating all possible future conditions that you can reasonably contemplate. And you can do the same thing in your business. So how I know you've been you've been growing your business and it it looks like it's like oh Mitch is super successful he's winning awards and he's doing all these things but and you've talked about this in other spreecasts but it takes time and it's not easy and it takes a lot of hard work so just to give people a little bit of encouragement don't be like oh my gosh I don't have that in my contract I'm not even using a contract or whatever just start today and keep going mm -hmm. and um, you want to give any closing advice well, sure. Uh, I've actually taken some of the language that we've talked about. Arbitration provision, the language you should use in an agreement. Mediation provision. We've taken some language that has to do with attorney's fees. One way to keep someone from suing you uh, on a frivolous lawsuit is if you have a provision in your agreement that says, if litigation is commenced, the losing party has to pay the prevailing party, the winning party's attorney's fees and costs. That's a deterrent to frivolous lawsuits. And so I've included some language uh, on this link right here that you can plug into your agreements. The other provision that I think everyone should have, Diane, is a venue provision. When we're doing business online, when we're entering into contracts with, with other people, the question is if somebody has an issue, if somebody thinks the other person did something wrong, where do you adjudicate that issue? Where do you have your arbitration, your mediation, or if litigation's filed, where is that lawsuit going to be filed? If I'm here in California and I'm doing business with someone in New York, the last thing I want to do is have to fly back to New York to defend myself on a frivolous case. So we put a venue clause at this page that people can copy and paste into their agreements that will basically say, and we'll, you know, what I say is, if legal actions commenced concerning any disputes relative to this retainer agreement, 
Orange County, County, California will be the appropriate venue for all matters. And you can negotiate this. Once again, before using any of these uh, template provisions, make sure to check with a local attorney in your state to make sure of two things. Number one, that these provisions are valid in your state. And number two, some additional language is, it, uh, is not required because some states require additional language for these provisions to be valid. Some states required the provisions to be in bold and capitalized, and that's it. So check with local counsel, but the uh, arbitration, mediation, attorney's fees, and venue clauses are all things that most of us should have in the agreements that we use. And if you, and Diane, as you said, uh, they'll put together a contract, maybe using a Word document. Over time, you can add these clauses. Over the years, you'll have a perfectly designed contract for your business, reflecting your personality, reflecting something that you've seen clients. You get a feel for what clients are comfortable with signing. And, and after a while, you'll put together a document that completely confirms the agreement you have. Everybody's comfortable. You get the paperwork out of the way so you can then move forward with their design needs and, you know, to basically build another happy client for life. So don't let the paperwork get in the way of running a successful business, but because you need to protect yourself, make sure that the paperwork you use is going to do just that, and it's going to be there if you ever need it. So this has been fun, Diane. Thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Do you have any, one last question. Do you have any tips for sure. finding a good attorney in, in the area? You know, I do. And, and by the way, uh, on this link down here, if you go to that page, sign up for the free ebook, which I'll just email over to you, but I'm going to be including in the ebook how to find a good lawyer in your state. There's three good ways to find a good lawyer wherever you're located. The first way is to ask someone who you respect. Ask someone that um, you truly value their opinion as to who they respect. You call that lawyer and then ask that lawyer or his secretary what type of law does he or she practice. Uh, that's the first step, personal referrals. Number two, use a site such as martindale.com. Martindale Hubble has been around for 140, 150 years. It's an independent service that independently rates lawyers. And if you go to martindale.com, you can do a search for a lawyer in your city, in the area of practice that you're looking for, and you can even drill down and narrow the results to lawyers that are AV rated. That's Andy Victor rated. That's the highest rating a lawyer can get in both ability and in ethics. So if you're going to use the service, why not look for the best? The ratings are not ratings that lawyers can pay for. These ratings are determined by the local lawyers and judges who complete a confidential surveys. And then over time, over the years, uh, a lawyer will eventually, assuming that he or she's doing a good job for their clients, they'll get the reputation that will lead to an AV rating. So that's the second way. The third way, Diane, is if you needed a lawyer out here in Orange County, California, and you didn't know me, you didn't know who to turn to, what I suggest people do is they contact the local bar association of the city or county that they're interested in finding a lawyer. Ask that local bar association the names and phone numbers of the last two or three local bar association presidents. Call their offices, let them know what type of case they have, who would they recommend in town to help them 
with that type of case. Those are the three best ways to find a good lawyer. Great. Well, Mitch, I know you got to run. So thank you so much. And next week, join us back. We have a illustrator, another person who draws type, another letterer. So come back. And um, again, Mitch, thank you so much. And hope I'll get to have you on again. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. And it's just always so you know, good. I... <laughs> oh, you know, go ahead. See, you shouldn't have interrupted me. I was going to say the pleasure's all mine. I really enjoy spreecasting with you. This is a great platform. Let's do more of these together. You know how to get a hold of me. If anybody has any questions, uh, just reach out to me through our website. I'd be happy to take your hand and walk you through anything that we've talked about. It would be my pleasure. I'm just going to add a couple of links. And so MitchJackson.com, he has a new um, website, so you can mm. do that. Or Jackson and Wilson.com. And the and is in there, um, but I've shared that link lots of times. But this is also, let's see, and then there's this one. So Mitch Jackson. Perfect. So you guys follow him, follow me, and I'll see you next week. And Mitch, I'll see you around. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.